You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, There's a new relationship style in town, kids, and it is radical. Vice wrote it up last week, so you know it's got to be radical. It's in Vice, and radical is right there in the headline. And I'm going to tell you about this radical new relationship style. I hope you're sitting down. If you're driving, you might want to pull over. If there are kids in the room, you might want to put those earbuds in. Okay, ready? Two people meet, they fall in love, and then... They only have sex with each other forever. Okay, maybe you've heard of, actually, that was me doing the exploding head gif. All right, maybe you've heard of something like this before. Two people in a sexually and emotionally exclusive romantic relationship. Maybe you've seen that style of relationship portrayed in movies and on TV to the exclusion of all other styles of relationships. And maybe you've even heard that kind of relationship being advocated for by politicians and preachers. There might even be examples in your own immediate family of people in just this style of relationship. And so you may be asking yourself, what's radical about this? What's radical about monogamy? Vice writer Nick Levine sets out to answer that question in a piece headlined, What is Radical Monogamy? For about half the piece, I was nodding along. I was pleased by what I was reading. Levine talks first with Robin Oakes, the bisexual author and activist. You may be familiar with her definition of bisexuality, which I have shared on this show probably a million times. I follow Robin on Instagram. So should you. I learn a lot. So could you. And yeah, everything Robin said, I was nodding along with. Quote, To explain the concept of radical monogamy, Oakes draws a contrast between reflexive monogamy blindly accepting that it is somehow morally superior to have just one sexual partner and the more informed and conscious choice of radical monogamy. After realizing monogamy is not categorically superior to polyamory, Oakes tried to, quote, shut out the cultural noise around what type of relationship I should want and ask myself instead what I do want. In other words, Levine continues, monogamy can be a choice you arrive at after considering your own agency and options, rather than a blind expectation. All right, sure, yeah, right. Endorsed, four stars, would recommend. That's what I've been advocating around here for decades. Me and a lot of other sex writers, sex researchers, therapists, marital counselors even, what a lot of people have advocated for and gay male couples have been practicing forever, which is monogamy as an active choice. A conscious decision made by a couple, not the default setting, something you choose, something you opt into. So, okay, yeah, I'm all for this, but radical monogamy sounds a little silly, like Jumbo Shrimp or Harry Twink or Compassionate Conservative. But I'm all for this rebranding, this repackaging. I'm all for calling the making of this choice an informed and free choice where monogamy is concerned. I'm all for calling it radical. If that encourages more people to think of monogamy as a choice they can make. That would be great. Call it radical monogamy. I'm all for it. 
And yeah, that's when I should have stopped reading Levine's piece. Should have stopped right there. Because after speaking with Oakes, who is reasonable and smart and thoughtful, Levine hands the mic to Jericho Vincent, who, at least on this subject, is none of those things. Vincent not only practices radical monogamy with his husband in Brooklyn, but Vincent thinks they invented the concept, at least the name. Vincent tells Levine that the old form of monogamy, the monogamy practiced by our parents and grandparents who may not have been monogamous for all we know, but that old form of monogamy, pre-radical monogamy, monogamy as the default setting, was, quote, predicated on heteronormativity and misogyny and very frequently breeds boredom, disloyalty, and stagnation. So earlier in their life, to avoid the boredom, disloyalty, and stagnation of monogamy, Vincent practiced polyamory. And they tell Levine that they believed people in their life who told them that monogamy was ridiculous, unrealistic, and unhealthy. But now, Vincent tells Levine, I've come around to believing that all those other people's messages were wrong. If approached with intentionality, effort, and a willingness to grow, it is possible to have a love that's big and magical and monogamous. So how does this radical magical monogamy work in practice? Back to Vincent, if I'm bored and hungry for something new or dissatisfied with some element of my partner, instead of seeking to meet those needs in other intimate relationships, I face these issues and hold myself and my partner responsible for keeping our relationship vital and exciting. Vincent adds, intimate relationships can trigger childhood trauma. Radical monogamy creates a container of profound safety that allows me to face the trauma that I carry and to do the challenging work of healing from that trauma. All right, backing up. So poly people, when we're bored or hungry or upset or we have a fight, we just add a new partner, add a new intimate partner to the mix. So that means Terry and I, who have one other partner each, that means we've only had one fight or been bored just one time or hungry just one time in the last 28 years. And when we're feeling traumatized, our relationship isn't a container of profound safety. And instead of facing and healing from our childhood traumas, we just go on a date, go sit on some other dick and inflict our trauma on somebody else. Uh, I'm sorry. Vincent's definition of radical monogamy is the same old monogamous superiority in a brand new bag. The suggestion, the implication, the assertion, really, that people in open relationships aren't doing the work, that we don't meet each other's needs or want to, that we don't hold each other responsible, that we don't work at keeping our relationships vital and exciting. Indeed, sometimes opening the relationship is what keeps the relationship vital and exciting. And instead of facing our childhood traumas, we just add new people. Every time we fight or we're bored, get a new partner. Which if that was true, if that was the way it worked, Terry and I would have three or 400,000 other partners at this point and not just one each. You know, I think the problem here is we all grew up being told that monogamy is the only thing we should want. It's the only thing that existed and it was what all good people did. Now, after 10, 20, 30 years of the sex positivity movement, there are enough people out there in polyamory land who are kind of saying to monogamous people, what monogamous people for a long time said to polyamorous people or people in open relationships, which boils down to you're doing it wrong. Well, it was bullshit when the monogamous folks told people in open or poly relationships that we were doing it wrong. And likewise, it's bullshit when polyamorous people turn around and suggest that 
monogamous people are doing it wrong. And it would be great. It would be great for everybody if we all stifled the you're doing it wrong impulse and just allowed for polyamory or monogamy, allowed that those are choices that people should be empowered to make. And indeed, those are choices that people may make at different times in their lives. Everyone I know in an open relationship has been in a closed relationship. A lot of people I know in closed relationships have been in open or polyamorous relationships. What's working for you right now, radical or not, may not be working for you five or 10 years from now. And you and the person you are still with or persons you're still with at that point may decide to make a different choice. So we can call that radical monogamy and radical polyamory. But I got to say, for team polyamory and team open, that it's always been the monogamous people who were louder with this, you're doing it wrong shit. And monogamous people who put a false choice before us. You can have one partner or you can be a terrible person. If radical monogamy boils down to, you can have one partner or be a broken person. Radical monogamy ain't any better than plain old monogamy monogamy. Hey, But if radical monogamy is making an informed choice to be monogamous, if that's the relationship style that works for you, great. If radical monogamy, on the other hand, is just a new way to heap insults on people who aren't monogamous, that's not radical monogamy. That's your parents' and grandparents' monogamy and their prejudices too. All right, coming up on today's show on the Magnum Savage Lovecast, Laura Kipnis joins me to talk about her new book, Love in the Time of Contagion. And Nancy just slipped me a note that says next week's show is a surprise for me that she cooked up with you, my listeners. I don't know what that means. I will find out and you will find out next week. Now, let's get to the show. Tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love, you've got the interview with Laura Kipnis, extra bonus podcasts, a monthly online Zoom hangout with me, and no ads, no ads on the Magnum podcast. Go subscribe at savage.love. Now let's get to the show. Hi, Dan and Nancy. I am a recently separated cis woman in her late 40s calling from Toronto. I'm in a loving, committed DS relationship with an amazing man who I've been friends with for over a decade. I discovered my true dom self with him and am free to explore outside of the relationship given my high sex drive and limited past number of partners. Our relationship is only open on my side and we are both very turned on by this. My question to you is twofold. Firstly, I have two grown daughters, age 19 and 21, who both struggle with mental health issues. I've always been very open with them sexually and I've always pushed them to advocate for themselves and having agency and pleasure in any of their relationships. Having said that, we are very close and speak daily, if not even more often than that. They both know that I am in this committed relationship, so should I be sharing with them the true nature of it? Also, my partner does not want his children to know about our kink, and sharing with my girls would eventually lead to that. The reason I ask is because I do go on several dates and encounters and have to lie to them about my whereabouts. They can sense this when we speak, which in turn causes awkwardness. If I were to share, it would obviously be on a need-to-know basis so that they know that I'm safe. I just hate lying to them since one of the main promises that I made to myself when I left their father after over 30 years together was that I was going to be honest and true with the people I love. 
My second question revolves around finding men to enjoy these encounters with. I found Tinder to be unsafe and an incredible waste of my time in that so much communication leading to nothing. So my go-to has been, for lack of a better word, a cheating app, where I feel that men are safer, more discreet, and really more likely to be STI-free since health is a primary concern of mine, given that I'm a cancer survivor. But morally, I've struggled with this, but I justify it to myself that these men would be fucking other women anyway, so why not me? And also, um, they may be able to satiate their want to explore and then be done with it, since I am only looking for very short-term hookups, as opposed to engaging in something longer-term, which could be more damaging to their marriages in the long run. So my second question to you is, what do you think of this from a moral integrity perspective? And do you think it is safe to be routinely meeting for drinks first and then bringing them back to my place to fuck shortly thereafter? Your kids don't need to know that mom's in a one-sided dom-sub open relationship. And you can't tell your kids that you're in a one-sided dom-sub open relationship because if you tell your kids, then your boyfriend's kids are going to find out and he doesn't want his kids to know. So yeah, yeah, you're going to have to prioritize your boyfriend's boundaries, his limits, his comfort and respect the fact that he hasn't consented to essentially being outed to his kids by you telling your kids what's up, you know, these details about your relationship that they don't need to know. I don't think his kids need to know it. He certainly doesn't want his kids to know it. And your kids don't need to know these things. It's wonderful that you have an open relationship, not just with your boyfriend, but you have an honest open relationship with your kids. It's great that in the past you've told them everything. And I think it's wonderful to be honest with everyone in your life, but honest doesn't necessarily mean full disclosure at all times about every detail, particularly if disclosing a certain detail would hurt, anger, humiliate your partner. So you can't tell your kids. If you're worried that your kids might see you out with another man on what is clearly a date, or you're worried that your kids might drop by your place while another man is there, all right, maybe you want to get in front of that and tell your kids that you're in an open relationship. You don't have to add that it's a one-sided open relationship. You don't have to add that your boyfriend is a cuckold. You don't have to add that it's a dom-sub relationship that you happen to be in now. You don't have to share those details. But a time may come, and you should talk about this with your boyfriend, a time may come when you have to let them know that you're not cheating if they saw you out with another man, that you're in an open relationship. But after that open relationship period, the end, shut your mouth. No more details that your kids don't need to know and that your boyfriend doesn't want his kids to know. As for finding men, all right, didn't work out on Tinder. You got on a cheating app. Can you make a moral or ethical argument for cheating? with these men or making it possible for these men to cheat on their wives with you as the, I guess, adulterous receptacle. Sure, you did. You made a moral and ethical argument for it. You're a, if they're going to cheat anyway, a good person for them to cheat with because you're not looking for a relationship and you're, you know, you already have feelings for someone and you are therefore far less likely to catch feelings for 
one random guy from a cheating app that you hooked up with one night. I'm, you know, I've said a million times that cheating is sometimes the least worst option for all involved. And so in my moral universe, there does exist a place for the person, someone who is married to someone else cheats with, and it is, I don't want to call it a moral good, but least worst option, like I said. And yeah, you can make a case that you're a good person if the cheating is going to happen anyway for that cheating to happen with. Doesn't mean it's not cheating. It's still cheating. And not everyone is going to be comfortable, you know, not everyone would be comfortable being a party to cheating. And if people find out, if your daughters find out, you may be judged and judged harshly despite the moral and ethical rationalizations you've been able to make to justify this, which I find convincing, but yeah, I'm not necessarily the target audience for that argument you might find yourself one day having to make to your kids. As for whether it's safe or not to meet a strange man, have a drink, and then bring him back to your apartment, there's never 100% safe sex in, in any respect. I can't, you're asking me essentially to vouch for all of these men from cheating apps that you're meeting. I can't do that. Know their real names, meet them in public, trust your gut, watch out for red flags, call it off if you don't want to go through with it. You can take all of that advice, you can do all of those things and still wind up with someone in your apartment who is dangerous or wind up with someone knowing where you live who, even if you didn't catch feelings for him, might have caught feelings for you and doesn't or refuses to take that was fun, now go away for an answer. There are inherent risks here. You can control for them, you can mitigate them, but if you're asking me whether it's safe, you're asking me if you can eliminate them. And yeah, the answer to that is no. No, you can't. Hi, Dan. I'm a cisgendered 34-year-old female living somewhere in the Midwest. I recently got divorced out of a narcissistic abusive relationship and I'm just entering the relationship waters again. I fell really hard for this one guy back in December and things were going ridiculously well, like over the top, crazy good, great sex, great kissing, great text messages, super affectionate with each other. And then two weeks ago, out of nowhere, he starts just kind of pulling back. He's been going through a rough time. There have been issues with his work life and he's been going through litigation with the job that he has. And I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and be supportive, but it's only been three months and I feel really ignored. Because of the situation I came out of, I'm not sure how to read it. I'm not sure whether or not I am just unable to meet the needs of this guy or if he's unable to meet my needs or if this is something that one would write out. I haven't been dating anyone else. I haven't tried with anyone else. No one else has interested in me. This guy like does checks all my boxes and I would hate to let the relationship go. But at the same time, if he's not able to meet my needs this early on, then what am I supposed to do? How does one know whether to ride the dragon or just kind of hang back? My opinion is that you may be engaged here in a common logical fallacy that people in new relationships are prone to engage in, which is basically the assumption, not really a logical fallacy, that because he checks all your boxes and things have been going great so far as you're concerned, great sex, great kissing, great text messaging, 
that he feels exactly the same way, that everything that feels so great for you must feel great for him. Otherwise, it wouldn't feel great for you. And it's possible that it's felt pretty good for him, maybe even great. It's also possible that he didn't feel as strongly about you as you felt about him. Not that he was playing you or just playing along, but that he was enjoying you, but not quite to the extent that you were enjoying him. And you say it's only been three months, and indeed, it's only been three months. And what do people do during those first few months of a new relationship? They vet each other. They assess each other. They decide whether this is something they want to continue to pursue. And you would obviously like to continue to pursue it. And he may feel differently. And that sucks. It sucks when you meet somebody who checks all your boxes and, you know, a few months after you've gotten all your boxes checked and maybe a couple other things have happened to your boxes, you get the sudden feeling, the sneaking feeling that maybe you aren't checking as many boxes for them as they check for you and you feel them pulling away. And it sucks because they checked all yours and you really want you really want it to be entirely mutual, but you can't control that. And yeah, that's why I keep returning to, it sucks. He may be pulling away because he's not as into you as you are into him. Also possible that he is just not as available at the moment as he was previously because you said there's some shit going down for him at work. Well, there's a good way to figure out what's really going on here. And it's not to pull away from him in a retaliatory way to try to manipulate him to come chasing after you. It's to give him the time and space that he needs and to be explicit about it. Like, look, I know a lot's going on for you at work right now, and I don't want to be a burden, so I'm going to adjust my expectations. You've been giving me a lot of time and a lot of attention, and I don't want you to feel pressured to keep providing me with as much time and attention. So let's pull back. Let's dial it back. And when things calm down for you a little bit at work, maybe we can pick back up. And in the meantime, let's stay in touch. And in the meantime, you're also free to see other people. And if he comes charging back at you after things settle down at work and is suddenly available to you in the way he was available to you in the first 12 weeks of this relationship, okay, well, maybe you checked as many boxes. Maybe he felt as strongly and it was some outside force acting on him that began to make you feel like he was pulling away when he wasn't pulling away because he wanted to, but because perhaps for at least a couple of months, he needed to. Hi, Dan. I'm 32, and my 34-year-old brother just caught our dad cheating on our mom. My brother saw my dad at a farmer's market that he knows we both go to pretty much every week. Uh, He saw him holding a woman's hand and get into a car with her. This gets even more shady because my dad was supposedly on a ski trip this week um, and not supposed to get back until tomorrow. In fact, my brother was supposed to go to my mom's house tonight for dinner and help her make dinner because she's disabled and needs help taking care of herself. So we know my dad wasn't back early as this still was the plan. If I don't sound very traumatized, it's because I actually have been in this situation before 
I caught my dad cheating about nine years ago. I saw him kissing another woman at a bar and it turned out she was his like long-term girlfriend. When this all came out, my dad tried to gaslight me and he turned my whole family against me and said I was a liar. I won't go into too much detail about that, but after many years of turmoil, me and my dad have been on okay terms, but he's never apologized to me and I haven't really trusted him since. Uh, I managed to move past this by telling myself what goes on in other people's relationships isn't my business. I don't know and I don't want to know what's going on in my parents' marriage. I've long suspected my dad still sees other people and I just frankly try to not spend a lot of time thinking about it. So when my brother called me to tell me this today, I was not very surprised. But my brother, on the other hand, is pretty traumatized. Now he's asking me what he should do. And honestly, I have no idea what to tell him. Like, maybe my mom knows. They have some sort of arrangement, maybe. Or maybe she just suspects, but is happier not knowing. As I mentioned, she's physically disabled and very dependent on my dad financially and just in a day-to-day sense. I told my brother not to tell her because I think it could hurt her and would have major implications on her life if they were to split up. But should he talk to my dad? And if so, what should he say? From past experience, my dad isn't one to take on responsibilities for his actions. And he's also a pretty notorious liar. I just don't know if my brother will get very far talking to him. But yeah, I wish we weren't in the position to be dragged into my parents' marital problems all over again. But my dad is being pretty careless and this is the second time. Like, he's not really giving us much choice. First, can I say how much I hate your fucking dad? (laughs) Yes, you may. I kind of hate him too. For the impossible position that he put you in, the way he gaslit you and tried to turn the family against you when you caught him doing what he goddamn damn well knew he was doing and that he's doing it again in such a careless, reckless way that's putting you and your brother in this impossible position. And I ache for you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's very complicated and uh, it's very hard trying to figure out how to move forward just because we're trying to keep my mom's feelings in mind, but also like, I feel like we have such a right to be angry and yeah, we're just kind of in a standstill right now because don't know how to react to this. When we talk about disclosing an affair, we usually are talking about, you know, one partner, a spouse disclosing the affair they had to their spouse. And sometimes you know, we talk about the burden of knowing and you're shifting the burden of knowing onto your spouse's shoulders. And sometimes it's better not to burden your partner with that disclosure But this is a case where the burden has been shifted onto your shoulders and your brother's shoulders about whether or not to disclose to your mother that her husband is having affairs. And the question that you guys are in the position of having to ask yourselves is whether your mother is better off not knowing than knowing, whether she's better off with the asshole that is your father than without the asshole that is your father. And it's possible that she knows, but knowing that you guys know would be so humiliating she would feel that she would have to leave him. And if she's disabled and dependent on him financially and for care, that could really radically alter 
in a negative way, her quality of life, her quality of life and not being married to that asshole anymore might improve, but her day-to-day care, her finances, all of that could be devastated. Yeah. And another part of this whole thing is I feel like she thinks this is what she deserves. Like she's pretty down on herself Uh given her disability. Uh Um, And I feel like if we did tell her or he told her, she, I think she probably would stay with him because she just thinks it's what she deserves. Could she leave him? Would it be financially or logistically possible for her to be independent of him? She wouldn't be able to leave him without a lot of support from my brother and I, at least. I've been dealing with this for about nine years. <laughs> mm-hmm. All my brother's kind of just like new opening his eyes to it. Like he kind of knew, but I don't think he fully believed it. But he's very much in the position now where he's like, yeah, she can move in with me. I will support her full time. And I don't know, I've had longer to sit with it and really don't know if that's reasonable or the right decision. So. Oh my God. It's it's just that any move you make is going to feel like potentially the wrong move. If you say nothing to your mother, then you're, you know, enabling your father's bad behavior. Or you may feel if it ultimately comes out and your mother finds out that you knew all along complicit in it, in a way that fucks up your relationship with your mom But if your mom knows, it might be helpful if you went to your mom and you were like, what do you want us to do with this? Do you want us to pretend we don't see it too? Because we see it and he's not being discreet and we don't know what to do. And it might be a comfort for your mother to have you two to confide in that, you know, she's not being fooled by this and she knows who her husband is and it might be a relief to your mother to be able to talk with at least you two about the compromises she's made and what she's settled for. And it might not be, she thinks your father is all she deserves, but it might be that she feels that it's better for her to be with him and for him to fuck around than for her to be on her own or a burden to you guys. So having an honest conversation with your mother could be very clarifying, but it could all, there's that risk that it could put your mother in a position where she feels like she has to do something that she doesn't want to do, which is leave your dad. So she's not, you know, she doesn't feel humiliated in your eyes or feel like she's letting you guys down. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's, it's so hard. Like I'm very scared to even approach her with this information what happened? No, you say the last time you confronted your dad and he turned the whole family against you. So the last time you caught your dad having an affair, did you tell your mom about that? How far did the everybody finding out and dad gaslighting you go? Yeah. So when I caught him, I actually saw him kiss someone with my own eyes at a bar. The and in the moment, I, uh-huh. I know. And a bar he knew I went to regularly. It was like down the street from my boyfriend at the time's house. Anyway, so I, in the moment, just didn't even think about it and went right up to him and started calling him out and raging on him. Uh-huh. And then I ended up leaving and he tried to get ahead of it. And he actually told my mom, but what he told her was, 
our daughter thinks she saw something that she didn't. And she, I was hugging someone and I think she thought it was something else. And so we tried to get ahead of the narrative and, and your mother chose to believe that. Yeah, she did. Okay. And you can understand why your mother might've made the choice, if not to believe that, to pretend to believe that. So as not to lose face. Exactly. And we had a few other conversations after, cause I was so hurt that conversations with your dad or your mom. With my mom. Mm. Um, and I felt very unheard and very unbelieved. And she said during one conversation, like, I can't leave him. So that was kind of her way of, I think, like, telling me without telling me she believes me, but that she's never going to leave him. Okay. So if that's what your mom told you last time, I don't see the upside <laughs> in going to your mom with the news that her husband is still the person her husband always was and is doing what he's always done, except to exacerbate your mother's pain. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. But then the other part of it is I've been like knowing what I know for so long and pretending and going through the motions of being a happy family and just knowing that he's still up to his same old bullshit. Like, I don't know if, I can sit with that and pretend it's not happening. So if me and my brother stop attending like family events and those types of things, we all live in the same city. So we do tend to see each other often. Okay. Um, okay. Here's what I think you should do. And I'm in the advice business, which is telling people what to do, which is therapists don't do that. <laughs> I do that. I'm going to tell you what to do. The Please. two of you blow the fuck up at your father and demand yeah. from him the courtesy and the consideration of at least being discreet if he's going to fuck around like this, that he's doing it publicly in places where you will see, where his son will see, where people will see you see or see his son see. Well, he tells lies that are easily disproved, like he's going off skiing for a week when he's in town fucking around and going to bars where his son's possibly going to walk in the door. It just demonstrates a contempt for you and for your brother, that is intolerable. But to protect your mother, you're not right now going to say anything to her. She's already made it clear that she doesn't want to know, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not going to say anything, not because you support your dad, not because you don't think your dad's being an asshole, but on the condition that your dad at least make a, the minimal effort to do what he hasn't done so far, or only does intermittently, who knows how many affairs he's had in between the one you spotted and the one your brother spotted, and be fucking discreet. It is literally the least he can do for you and your brother to turn a blind eye. This is transactional. We will turn a blind eye. We will not say anything to mom so long as we never see evidence of this again, so long as you don't rub it on our fucking noses like you yeah. have been, because it is unfair to us. It puts us in an impossible position. And so, stop. Yes. That's what I would do. Like, based on your mother's actions in the past, based on what she told you, I think it would be incredibly painful for your mother to hear this from your brother now and then to have to make the same choice, including having to make the choice to at least appear to take your father's side yeah. so that she doesn't feel like she's lost face. And this can feel like you're enabling 
your dad's infidelities, that you're complicit in them, that you're cooperating somehow in, in fooling your mother. But yeah, there's nothing but bad choices here. There's nothing but humiliating your mother and, and everything. Oh, oh my God. Like, I hate that it feels like I'm running interference for your dad. And you guys are going to hate to feel that way too. I know. It's a fucking mess. <laughs> it is a fucking mess. And fuck your father. I'm going like, to yes. return to what I said when we first started talking. I hate your fucking dad. And part of me yes. wants you to go in there and blow your dad's life up. But I think it's your mother's life. I think it's your mother who will be further punished and further suffer. If you do what a lot of people would think is the right thing and take this to your mother, confront your mother and or confront your mother and father together. I think you should leverage from your father some more discretion and consideration for your feelings, for your brother's feelings, and ultimately for your mother's feelings. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And my dad deserves to be <laughs> told off by me and my brother as a united friend. Show up for family events uh, uh, so long as your mother's alive. And then the second yeah. your mother has passed, you don't ever have to see your asshole father again. Yeah, that's what I've been doing before. <laughs> So keep doing what you're doing. Try to talk your brother into doing it too. And God, I ache for you. I ache for your brother. I ache for your mother. And I fucking hate your dad. Me too. Good luck. Thank you so much, Dan. Bye-bye. Hey, Dan. Uh, 34 year old straight male here from a big city. I, a couple of years ago, although I want kids, want a family, came to the realization that I was never going to feel comfortable having biological children, uh, just with where the world's headed politically, environmentally. I just really don't feel like it's right to bring a child into the world, knowing that they're going to have to grow up into this really bleak future. I feel very confident about this decision two and a half years on. I feel felt very relieved having made it. The problem is it makes it extremely difficult, probably seemingly impossible to find a life partner. I lost the relationship that I was in when I had this realization uh, because my partner then really, really wanted to be pregnant, have her own kid. So that ended in heartbreak for both of us. I have spent lots and lots of time on dating apps, uh, which has led to no relationships. And all of my profiles say right up front that I am not having biological children but would love to adopt if possible um, or have a family in some other way. I think that narrows down my options quite a lot. And even people who are kind of on the fence, maybe they want to have kids, maybe they don't, just uh, just had my heart broken by someone in that, in that group um, because, of course, nobody's going to choose closing off their options for a new relationship versus leaving their options open um, in case they decide they want to get pregnant in the future. And then, of course, anybody who for sure doesn't want kids, doesn't like kids, isn't really going to be for me either because I do want a family. Um, so the first question is, what do I do with this? I really do want a long-term partner. I want to you know, be married, have a family, but the number of people that might possibly match my, my very specific plans for that seems so small that when you also account for compatibility, interest, and so forth, all these, all these other important factors, I just can't see how, how there's going to be somebody out there uh, in the foreseeable future that, that fits all those, checks all those boxes. Am I thinking about this wrong? What, what could I be doing differently? Like I said, I'm already on a lot of dating apps, gotten a few friendships out of that, those, but, which is great, but not really what I'm looking for. Should I be thinking about this differently? Should I be broadening my horizons somehow? I don't know. What do you think? It's good that you know this about yourself, that you don't want to have your own biological children. I could see, if I was a woman looking through personal ads, it being slightly off-putting 
that you would lead with that or center that or feel the need to put that on the table right away? Even if I didn't want kids or my own bio kids myself, I might find it just slightly odd that it, almost as if what you were saying was I'm a 34 year old male and I realize all you desperate bitches out there want to have babies and want to have them right now, but not with me. You can stop. Everyone stop clamoring for my semen. It's not going to happen. I could see that obviously turning off women who wanted to have their own biological children with their male partners. I could also see that potentially turning off some women who might be on the fence about whether they wanted children or not, just because it makes you seem a little hyper-focused on something that, you know, wanting to put something on the table out of the gate that maybe is something that you have a conversation with the person that you're dating after a couple of months, three, four, five months, when you reach that point where you begin to imagine you might have a future with this person, and then you discuss something like this. So I don't think that you should hide the ball or hide the fact that your balls aren't going to make the semen that makes the baby. I don't think you should hide the ball. This is something you want to disclose early, but I don't think on your personal ads, you know, on dating apps, it's something that you want to throw down on the table right away. And yeah, it will make it a little more difficult for you to find a life partner. Well, yeah, no, that's wrong. It won't make it difficult for you to find a life partner. It makes it a little more difficult for you to find the wrong one. You don't want to wind up with someone who wants kids when you don't want them. So being upfront about it, if not the first thing you list on your dating app, but maybe something you talk about second, third, or fourth date, if being upfront about it means you don't get a fifth, sixth, or seventh date, okay, well, obviously you two aren't right for each other. So yeah, we'll make it harder to date. It'll make it harder to date the wrong people. But there are plenty of women out there who don't want kids, Additionally, there are lots of women out there who already have kids. You say you don't want your own biological children. You say that you want to adopt. Okay, you could, if you date single mothers, wind up parenting, not your own biological children, and adopting, not your own biological children, but parenting and adopting your partner's biological children. We're going to take a break from your calls to speak with Laura Kipnis, cultural critic, essayist, occasional polemicist, author of numerous books, and her latest book, Love in the Time of Contagion, A Diagnosis. Hey, thank you, Professor Kipnis. May I call you Laura? Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Please do. May I call you Dan? Yes, you may. Um, before we get to Love in a Time of Contagion, I, I wanted to take this opportunity to speak with you about Against Love, uh, a polemic. One of your earlier books which I just adored, and everyone loves love. You, you're against it. Can you, it, can you, you know, put it out there in a couple of paragraphs? What against love is about, and why my love-seeking listeners should read against love. Well, the, it wasn't really against love. I think it's a deeply romantic book. Um, it was sort of against the confines of domestic monogamy and domestic coupledom. But it was very romantic about other kinds of love, for example, adultery. And I was sort of interested in the ways that people flee those domestic situations and find little enclaves of freedom in these, you know, renegade sorts of couples or temporary couples of uh, like extramarital, extra couple kinds of relationships. 
So it wasn't against love. It was just that when I hit on that title, it made me laugh out loud and I had to use the title, even though people often said to me, you're not against love, you're, you know, against marriage. So to, just to correct you, a, a, just a, a tad. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, of course I do that. I, I've read the book. I'm looking at it. It's on a shelf across the room from me right now. <laughs> it seemed to me as I read it, you know, and I'm notoriously a kind of pro-adultery guy. I've given people permission slips to have affairs. Sometimes I think an affair is the least worst option for all involved, including the person being cheated on. I get in trouble for saying these things. And what I came away with uh, after reading Against Love is it's against the way we talk about love and trying to put it in people's heads that love, you know, not love, commitment, marriage, uh, our ideas about it are war with our own desire, our own natures, which seeks some freedom and a zone of sexual autonomy. And that's what's often missing in marriage is any allowance for a zone of erotic autonomy. And people will, you know, slam their hand down on the self-destruct button to get that back, to get that feeling mm -hmm. of freedom and autonomy back. And if we want to, you know, retroactively re-engineer marriages to be more stable, we have to allow for that searching need, you know, for the, for that need for freedom to be met in the confines, confines of a marriage. Well, well, two things. I mean, one is I just do think, yeah, you're right. We're like inherently deeply split between these desires for freedom and to, you know, be out there and find what we can in the world. And then on the other hand, the desire for stability and connectedness and, you know, a kind of permanent sort of love and, and, and couple them. But the thing that I would add is I was fascinated when you said permission slip, and, you know, giving people permission slips to have affairs. And one of the things I was like appalled by was people assumed that I would be like really pro polyamory and they're always writing me, oh, polyamory is the solution. And I just thought, oh my God, there's so many rules, you know, that people <laughs> have. It's this whole new set of rules, a new set of permission slips. So I guess what interested me in talking about adultery was this rule breaking, you know, quality of it. And also, you know, how there's that mantra that relationships like good relationships take work. And I was like, well, you know, aren't we spending all day working? Do we have to come home and work some more? And isn't, you know, what, what's this whole overtime concept of, of love? So I was kind of trying to, to kind of map this, freedom seeking aspect of, um, you know, straying from a couple onto other larger kinds of rebellions, like against the regimes of work and overwork and, you know, adherence to bosses and HR departments and that kind of thing. Well, in polyamory, there are lots of rules, which is why there's a new relationship model for people who don't like the rules of polyamory, which is called sexual er relationship anarchy. Have you heard that expression? No, but it's, I think I'm for it. <laughs> it's just fucking around without rules. I think uh, rules, like in a committed exclusive relationship or in an open relationship, they're to safeguard against hurt feelings, uh, to you know create some safety for around people's insecurities. Uh, sexual anarchy or relationship anarchy, as I've seen it practiced, seems to me, and oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble for this, slightly sociopathic. <laughs> like, I will respect no rules because the only feelings that matter in any given moment are mine, yeah. uh, which is fine if everyone involved is 
an anarchist, but not fine if anarchists are sleeping with non-anarchists. Yeah. And I mean, I'm kind of a hypocrite here because like I'm for all of this stuff on the page, but I also, I've been in a 12 year relationship. So like there's a stability seeking part of me and a part of me that, you know, I was criticized um, in Against Love or not really understanding the position of the people who had been cheated on or left or, you know, and oftentimes it was a gendered kind of dynamic um, with the husbands leaving for younger women. So, I mean, all that is kind of true, but I think that in writing or just even in conversation like this, you can kind of take positions just to experiment with them or, you know, to be anarchic in our imaginations that you also don't necessarily have to, to live out. So I wasn't trying to kind of prescribe uh, uh, lifestyles or solutions, but just, you know, I think it is this perpetual problem because of our split natures that we want the anarchy, but maybe we also want the stability or the connection on a long-term basis with people so, you know, it just, it's an unsolvable mess, I think. So let's talk about the new book, which I love, Love in the Time of Contagion, a Diagnosis. How could I not love a book with a chapter titled Heterosexuality <laughs> and Its Discontents, in which you ask, can heterosexuality survive gender parity? What conclusion did you come to? Well, I felt even nervous putting it in, in such sweeping terms, but I also liked the, you know, largeness of that question. And I'm not sure what the answer is. I, I'm, you know, somebody who's like terrified of Twitter, but kind of trolls it a lot. And not, sorry, not trolls, but, you know, lurks, I guess is the phrase, because I'm just interested in how much animosity there is between the sexes in the heterosexual sphere, you know, like I think post me too, women are really pretty fed up with men and male fed up with male behavior. And there's a lot of interesting modes of retribution and takedowns going on. So I don't um, know how this will all play out, but I think that it plays out in the context of our, personal relationships, you know, in one-on-one -on -one way, in very convoluted, complicated ways. And, you know, certainly it's playing out in the, like, social media sphere and, in you know, in, in the larger sense where certain kinds of behaviors, you know, as we all know, like, see under Andrew Cuomo, you know, uh -huh. that were once tolerated are, you know, causing career downfall and, and terminations of, of people's livelihoods. So it is like, I mean, it's an interesting time, but it's like also there's just, it's a big mess. And um, I think people also act in ways in their private lives because we have desires that don't necessarily comport with our, you know, larger political goals. People act in pretty incoherent ways at a personal level. So all of that. And, and people often feel a conflict about, you know, their their politics around relationships between the sexes or genders and their desires, which can often be in conflict. You write in the book, the confusing part was the way that male sexuality itself, often invasive, yet for at least some percentage of self-identified heterosexual women, also a turn on, had been fast reconfigured as a moral hazard and a psychological threat. And I think I say an international crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an international crime. I, I hear from yeah. listeners all the time who are disgusted by quote unquote typical male behavior and aroused by it. Right. 
Exactly. How do we solve a problem that at least some significant percentage of the population kind of doesn't want to go away or wants to like yeah. bottle and contain so it can be, you know, like poppers safely opened and inhaled when you desire it, not constantly <laughs> up your nose when you don't desire it. <laughs> Good analogy. I like that. Um, but also I think there's an awful lot of people don't admit that it's a problem. I, and you know, like there was this case I write about because it played out all over Twitter where there were like four or five different women, young women, sophisticated feminists in media who were having relationships with the same guy, I think at different times, who was a freelance writer who was completely abusive, physically abusive, emotionally abusive, and yet they kept going back to him. And it wasn't even a situation, you know, like with Harvey Weinstein or somebody who, like, it wasn't like he was running a movie studio. He was just this guy. And they acted somehow as though they were entranced by him, as though just his his being a single male in Brooklyn uh, was like they, they couldn't say no. They couldn't quit him. And, and so when all of this broke, of course, it was all blamed on the man. And yes, he had acted horribly and despicably and violently. But there wasn't a way to ask the question, well, what was the attraction to the, this scene? And how is it that women 50 years after, you know, the beginning of second wave feminism are not able to kind of extract themselves from these scenarios. And and I don't want to be accused of victim blaming, and of course I will be, but it's like I want to have this conversation, like what's this this persistent allure to male power, even to our detriment or when it's, you know, it takes the form of physical violence. And physical violence masked as like BDSM and, you know, in Brooklyn sort of, you know, sex play. Rough sex. You know, the the retort to that is always, and I'm sure I've issued it on this show, women are socialized to defer to men, to not say no to men, yeah. to prioritize men's needs and feelings over their own. And one of the things that you wrote that I believe I quoted in, in an intro to a podcast a few years ago was that we're at this moment where we're asking men to unlearn some of the toxic ways in which they've been socialized. And yet we're not asking women to do the same. And maybe we need to do both. Yeah. So it's not enough just to say women are socialized to defer to men. What can we do about it? But we should be telling women to unlearn that socialization, just like we're telling men to unlearn how they've been socialized to feel entitled to women's bodies or attention. Yeah. I, I wrote about this a lot in my last book, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus, because I was writing about, you know, the way this plays out in campus, um, you know, mostly undergraduate relationships. And then it's left to like administrators, Title IX officers to adjudicate those kinds of situations. Whereas, you know, it does take, I think, not policing, but education for women, but also for men, because it's not, I, I mean, it's not just men, it's a kind of dynamic. And it is to go back to the beginning of the conversation, it's this heterosexual dynamic. And it is that women are socialized to be deferential and also at a maybe a deeper level to be kind of attracted to to male power and you know I go back in the the latest book to that Henry Kissinger saying way back from the I don't know 70s 1970s or 80s about um, power being an aphrodisiac and I don't think that hasn't 
stop being true. But only for women. Like when people talk about power being the ultimate yeah. aphrodisiac, power is not an aphrodisiac when a woman is powerful. Look at the way Hillary Clinton was treated when she sought power. Well, I guess there is, you know, you know, we see this on that show Billions with Chuck Rhodes, you know, the powerful men going to be humiliated and dominated and paying people to do it. So apparently there's quite a lot of that that goes on. But I guess that's another that's another story. Yeah, there is quite a lot of that. That is so that's a cliche. That's a rare cliche and that it's 100 percent true. It's not that <laughs> poor and unpowerful guys aren't also turned on by BDSM or being submissive, but you know, I have lots of friends who are professional dominatrixes and it's just, maybe they're the only guys who can afford them, but it's true that the guys who come in through the door and want to be treated this way are wealthy and powerful guys who want to give up their power in a controlled setting where they kind of ultimately do still retain the power of the purse. Yeah, I mean, there's so much I think we don't really understand about fantasy and how people use sex to play out these kinds of conflicts. Anyway, but that's your terrain (laughs) to figure this all out. Well, you write uh, one of your quotes that I highlighted in the book. There's a built-in weirdness to possessing a sexuality, whatever your gender. It reminds us that we're animals. It's bendable into perverse antisocial configurations, which is probably something we also like about it. It's not exactly news that sexuality fractures self-coherence. It's kind of what we're talking about right now, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it's sexuality is like a mystery to us, but I think emotional life generally, you know, we're handed this set of emotions that we don't really know what to do with. And, and to go back to my, the current book, I think that was a lot of what I was trying to write about in, in uh, the context of the pandemic, the way is that in relationships, we're kind of forced into these closed hothouse situations. I mean, a lot of us, unless you're out there um, as a a necessary worker, but, you know, people who are stuck at home for six months in small spaces, I was kind of trapped in a one-bedroom Manhattan apartment with my boyfriend for quite a long period of time. I mean, there were all these new facets of your emotional life and emotional dependencies and forms of acting out on each other uh, using each other as projection screens that I think we are at least speak for myself. I learned about under those pandemic conditions. So, so what did you learn? What's the diagnosis <laughs> here? What are we? What did the pandemic highlight that we're doing wrong, or could do better, or should do differently? Well, I don't have advice. You know, I, I, even when I wrote Against Love, people wanted to read that as an advice book. And I, I think if there was advice that worked, you know, there wouldn't be so many thousands or tens of thousands of advice books about love and relationships. So, I mean, I learned that, um, you know, in an interesting way, I think dependency brings out sadism <laughs> in us. Like I found myself, I talk about like having this unrestrainable impulse to pat the top of my boyfriend's head every time I walked behind his chair when we were watching TV and he hates having the top of his head touched because he says it makes him feel like a dog. And I just realized at some point it had become a kind of weird compulsion, you know, that I do this. I mean, I kind of felt like it was a bit like a good luck charm, you know, like rubbing the Buddha's stomach or something when you pass this statue. But I, I think there was just this kind of level of perversity that emerged from being both so dependent on each other and in such a cloistered situation without 
the outlook. And because I think that all of us, you know, in relationships, it, it like you actually rely on the outside world to supplement the relationship, to make the relationship and the emotions of it tolerable. And when so much of that was stripped away, you know, you really did see what you were made of. And it, it was not pretty. <laughs> I think some of the, you know, when I read that, I thought, you know, of things that are very similar in my relationships. But I also thought, you know, it's that tension. I want you to feel that you're safe with me, that I'm the person you're safest in the world with. And we're going to get through this pandemic together. And there's some part of you that also wants to say, and you're unsafe with me. Don't mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. assume that you're 100% safe with me because I am capable of a small symbolic betrayal, but also potentially a large, not so symbolic betrayal. I was reading that about you patting your boyfriend's head and reading into it a threat not to take me for granted because I'm mm-hmm. capable of not just loving you, I'm capable of hurting you. Well, yeah. I mean, the other big takeaway is that you know, the things that you're most attracted to in a person become the things, as I say, you most want to cut out of them with a steak knife. <laughs> and, you know, if if one of the things you're attracted to is that the person is like maybe a little emotionally volatile or a drama queen or, you know, never boring, like some of those same qualities under these those new conditions were the things that just became most intolerable. Um, or that they were good in like limited circumstances, like the person who's the life of the party, you know, and then suddenly there's no party, like, and then it turns out they're completely, um, like practically, you know, incapable in, in, in a daily life kind of way, you know? So, I mean, you know, it's a truism that nobody can be everything to the other person and that's why you need friends or you need your job or your workout routine or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you know, it did show us all, I think, how much outside the relationship was necessary for this relationship. But, you know, also you saw people in a pretty raw kind of emotional state and conditions. I mean, the anxiety and the fear, you know, at the beginning where nobody knew what was going on and it looked like the whole government and healthcare system were collapsing, you know? So we're, you know, this idea of us as like survivalist or in the bunker together and were the qualities that you were attracted to in the person, like their intellectual qualities and their, you know, knowledge of 19th century history or something like how is, how is that going to work out in the bunker? Before I let you go, um, we're running out of time. I wanted to ask you about Jeffrey Tubin to remind people, Jeffrey Tubin was a staff writer for the New Yorker for almost 30 years, a legal analyst on CNN. And he very famously, infamously was on a zoom call where he says that he thought he had turned off his camera and was a Zoom call, a Zoom meeting with colleagues, other writers for The New Yorker and I think from CNN, and decided to have a wank. And everybody in the meeting could see what he was doing. Um, You write about this incident and you argue that it illustrates a kind of fragility, that things that people used to be able to shrug off, uh, older women, particularly in the workplace, used to have to shrug off, People are incapable of shrugging those things off anymore. And a lot of the people who were on that Zoom call and even people who heard about that Zoom call claim to have been traumatized by what was done to them, by what they saw. Can you unpack that a little for me? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, how much could you actually see, even if you were on the call? I mean, in a little Zoom window, for one thing. So, you know, you're talking about, what, like an inch or something of screen space at the, at the most. But I think that in the, in the larger sense, um, I think the whole meaning of, of sex and what sex is has really transformed in the last couple of decades. You know, if you were alive in the pre-HIV era, you know, in the post-60s kind of moment of, I want to call it the sexual revolution or post-sexual revolution years when sex was considered to be like almost healthful, you know, it was good for you. And, you know, to the point now where sex or just the sight or glimpse or thought of sex in some manner that you didn't expect it is is traumatic. You know, sex has changed post-HIV. Post I mean, this is a longer conversation into something. And I think this may be even more true in the heterosexual context, seen as something potentially, you know, harmful, traumatizing, you know, and, and trauma gets into your bloodstream in the way that, you know, and it's not eradicable in the way that, that HIV once did. So there's just this pall over everything sexual such that, you know, something that harmed no one, you know, he was not even in the same room, too, been in the same room with people. Um, okay, so it was embarrassing, but it, how could it be traumatizing? So the overreaction to that kind of stuff combined with this need to bring people down, you know, this moment of, you know, turning people into monsters and, 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 and also this idea, oh, he was at work, you know, like work is some kind of temple now. He shouldn't have been doing it at work. I just found the whole thing amazing. And even, you know, queer people, feminists online were ranting about Tubin and, you know, the privilege that he was displaying for, you know, masturbating on online. The conversations are just so hypocritical and unreflective. But the, you know, that overreaction that we may be having now, is it not an effort to, not, I don't want to say compensate for, but correct for the underreaction that we had in the past. Well, sure, yes, that is true. But at the same time, I think nobody's stopping to ask, how does turning sex into this scene of punitive um, retribution and punishment, I mean, is that the kind of world that we want to live in? And in this deal to bring people down, um, I do think we need to stop and say, what is it we want the world to look like? I mean, mm -hmm. could there possibly be more forgiveness um, for people, you know, uh, making minor transgressions? I'm not talking about abuse and I'm not talking, you know, I'm not talking about assault, abuse, rape, sexual quid pro quos, all of the stuff that me too and those, you know, all the kind of um, HR investigations and that kind of thing are legitimately trying to, to stop and turn around. But, you know, the idea that anybody makes like, you know, says, tells the wrong joke on online, for example, is going to lose their career over it. Mm -hmm. Why do we need this much punishment, <laughs> you know, and particularly the mob distributed versions of it online. You use the expression, what kind of world do we want to live in? Because I recently got a call from a listener who was going to a class, a student, there was another student that she was attracted to, wanted to make a pass at, but didn't want to sexually harass anybody. And I 
took that call and I was like, I don't want to live in a world where asking somebody out is sexual harassment because nobody's going to get asked out by anybody except people who don't care about sexually harassing people. Asking someone out, taking no for an answer, not bothering them about it again, that's not sexual harassment. But sometimes it feels like there are a lot of people online, particularly, who would argue that it is because intent doesn't matter. It only matters how you made that person feel. If that person arrived at that classroom having been sexually harassed by somebody else, uh, you asking them out, even if you're willing to take no for an answer, could re-traumatize them. And you can't know like what kind of trauma they've experienced in the past. So you should just, everyone should err on the side of never asking anybody out. And I don't want to live in that world. Well, you, yeah. So sorry, but you do now. You know, the the actual like legal language is it's supposed to be a persistent pattern of, you know, harassment um, more than a reasonable person would be able to tolerate. And, and, you know, what you do see online or in some of these accusations, it's, it's a one-time thing. Somebody mm-hmm. asks somebody out at a work event or something like that, and that, that's actionable. So it is partly, you know, this mission creep of like Title IX officers or HR departments where they're redefining what sex is supposed to mean and look like. And and again, nobody's kind of stopping to say, wait a second, let's, you know, take a step back and look at whether this is how we want the world to look. And in the absence of that conversation or in the, again, this desire to, you know, mock people and bring them down and mob them online. I mean, like the Aziz Ansari thing. Okay, like maybe he acted kind of grossly on a date, you know, but the reaction to that as if that was equivalent to um, sexual assault, I think, was so overblown. And again, with nobody saying, okay, well, what are, you know, I mean, maybe there was some conversation later on, but, you know, is this what we want the world to look like? Can I ask you a personal question before I let you go? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> did your relationship survive the pandemic? Oh, it did. It did. And in fact, um, you know, there, I mean, despite everything that I've said, I think it did in many ways bring us closer. Okay. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I would say my experience of the pandemic has been the same. It's almost as if, oh my God, how sometimes being exposed to a disease agent or a toxin, you build up a higher tolerance. I feel like I've built up a higher tolerance for my husband after spending two years locked in the house together. There were some interesting conversations that were were had and some things that were, so, you know, I I hate to end on such a positive note because I like (laughs) to retain my ambivalence, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, there's, there were comforts, um, you know, to, to that situation as well as, you know, everything that I, all the ambivalences. Laura Kipnis, her new book, Love in the Time of Contagion, a Diagnosis, also the author of Against Love and many other books. You should pick them all up and read them all. Laura Kipnis, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It really was an honor Again, to get to speak with you. It was a you. pleasure for me. Thank you. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old bisexual Hispanic man living in Florida. I'm calling in because I caught feelings for a lesbian friend of mine. We were texting heavily at the beginning of our relationship, and I thought maybe she might have had some physical attraction to me. What drew me to her is how she made me feel loved and that I had the freedom to be myself. After a while, I realized that it was just basically a platonic relationship, but 
She's very emotionally possessive and gets extremely jealous when I talk to other women to the point where she's basically cock-blocked me on multiple occasions. You know, I, I try to get over her by talking to other girls. And I met a girl that I had a strong emotional connection with. But I kid you not, seven days after we started texting, she sends me a message telling me that she was recently proposed to, and she said yes. Long story short, the second girl is basically a cheater that's trying to hide behind non-monogamy and the label of an open relationship to do what she wants. There's a lot more I can say about both women, but I'm really calling in to see what, what I'm doing wrong. I know I'm sending the wrong kind of signals, you know, body language, energy that are attracting these kinds of these kind of people uh, to me. And what part of my personality is allowing them to get close enough to have any kind of negative impact on my life? I would love to talk to you, see what I can do to be more discerning or at least careful with these kinds of people and, you know, how I can be better at just guarding my emotions. I'm a very friendly and loving person, and I think that that just sends a signal that I can be taken advantage of. So we're talking about two relationships here, one with a lesbian that you caught feelings for, which is a perfect example of dickful thinking. Don't allow yourself to catch feelings for women who are lesbians. It's not going to go anywhere. But you described that relationship as one that involved mostly texting heavily and then the other relationship you're talking about is some other girl you met after you realized the lesbian was cock-blocking you and you got out from under that cock-blocking or away from your cock-blocking lesbian friend who is interested in you emotionally but not romantically or sexually and you meet somebody else and you spend a week texting with that person. And it sounds like the relationship was pretty much just texting, which means it wasn't really a relationship. It was a flirtation. So I think if you're looking for a pattern, and we're talking just about a data set here with two points in it, so we shouldn't overdetermine or we shouldn't endow this with too much meaning. But if you're looking for a pattern, I think it's some combo of dickful and delusional thinking. Neither of these were relationships. Sounds to me like you had crushes on both of these women, brief crushes. You were momentarily infatuated and these relationships meant a whole lot more to you than they did to them. So that's what you need to be on guard against. You need to be on guard against your propensity for allowing your feelings to run away with you. So in the future, when you have a friend who's a lesbian and you're texting with that person a lot, don't allow yourself to think that there's anything more going on there than just friendly banter. And in the future, when you meet a woman and you spend a week swapping dirty or flirty text messages with that woman, don't delude yourself into believing that that's a relationship. That is a flirtation. Now, maybe she shouldn't have been flirting with you, that second woman, because she was dating someone and it was serious on the verge of a proposal. But yeah, you don't know whether that was allowed before that proposal. You don't know whether she was cheating in the guise of being in an open relationship or actually in an open relationship. But what we do know is that she wasn't in a relationship with you. You were just texting someone and it didn't go anywhere. As most just texting, swapping, DMs, flirtations don't. Most don't go anywhere. 
So if you're going to do anything differently going forward, it wouldn't be don't be a nice guy. I wouldn't advise you not to be a nice guy. Of course, you should continue to be a nice guy. But don't allow yourself to think that more is going on than is actually going on. There was nothing going on with the lesbian that you had a crush on. And there was nothing really going on with the woman that you weren't dating, weren't having sex with, you weren't spending much, if any, time with in person. You were just texting a bitch and that bitch was texting you back. And that's nice and that can make us feel alive and that can go somewhere, but it ain't somewhere yet. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Jennifer Lubbock tweets, Thanks at Fake Dan Savage and the Savage Lovecast for the amazing Netflix suggestion of Young Royals. Great show, amazing actors. Getting me through this virus, my unmasked face caught this past week. Grateful to be vaxxed and boosted against COVID. Glad you're vaxxed and boosted. Jennifer, wishing you a quick recovery. Also, I was so happy to hear from so many listeners who gave Young Royals a try after hearing me talk about it on last week's Lovecast and loved it just as much as I did. Season two, for you bingers out there who got through the whole thing in a couple of days, season two comes this fall. I can't wait. Michael Bazell tweets, bought my best friend a Magnum Savage Lovecast subscription for his birthday, and I'm remembering the time my ex and I proposed a threesome with him. It's been about 10 years, and I still wish he'd said yes. Happy birthday, Yosef. Gonna second that happy birthday. Happy birthday, Yosef. Many happy returns. Hope you're enjoying the Magnum Savage Lovecast subscription that your friend Michael got you. And uh, I just want to point out that, yeah, Hitting on a friend, asking a friend to have a threesome, that can be awkward. But Michael's tweet here is proof that a friendship can survive that kind of awkwardness. Freedom to say no, welcoming that no, willingness to hear a no, and having a sense of humor about it, about rejection. That's what gets you past the awkwardness and can save a friendship. Again, happy birthday, Yosef. And Maud Formanek tweets, never thought I would get angry at fake Dan Savage. But telling women what contraception they must use did it for me. Hormonal birth control is not a vitamin. It has side effects. It increases the risk of cervical cancer. For many, these are worth the added safety of sex. But for some, like me, they are not. Condoms protect against pregnancy and STIs. Hashtag our bodies, our choice. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you for taking the time to respond, Maud, and to slap me upside the head. You are right. I was wrong. It was wrong of me to suggest to that dad who called in about his son having sex with a conservative young woman who wouldn't get vaxxed because her family talked her out of it and then probably wouldn't get an abortion if she got pregnant. I was wrong to tell him to tell her to get on the birth control pill. Instead, he should tell his son to go freeze some of his cum and get a vasectomy instead. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And a big thank you to everyone who posted to your social media this week about the show, whether you were agreeing or disagreeing with me about something. We really appreciate it. Gets the word out about the Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response to episode 803 where someone was part of a spit roast and vomit was involved. You gave great advice on the emotional side of things, reassuring everyone that if you're playing with butts, poop happens, and if you're playing with mouse, vomit can happen. Uh, one thing you didn't do so well was the physical side of things. When you vomit, all that stomach acid is in your mouth and can erode the enamel if you brush your teeth immediately after vomiting. Instead, you should rinse your mouth with water, rinse your mouth, with mouthwash after that, 
maybe even rinse it with a little bit of baking soda uh, in the water too. And then maybe 30 minutes after that, you could brush your teeth so you don't erode your teeth. Hi, Dan. This is a response to episode 803, where the older gentleman was involved with a younger, hot gay guy who was fucking around. And the older guy had said that he needed to get married within the next few weeks or the young guy would be forced to leave the country. I hate to be cynical, but this sure sounds like an immigration scam to me. I have seen something like this before with my own family. And that younger guy is going to use the older guy for as long as he's useful and then drop him like a bad habit. Hi, Dan. Calling in response to the man who is worried about his son's conservative girlfriend getting pregnant. I appreciated a lot of what you said and also think some of this man's concerned Papa Bear energy could be put towards advocating for his son's right to access comprehensive birth control, like male hormonal birth control, or even better, the reversible basal gel vas deferens plugs that are currently being tested in India and Europe, but are not yet available in the United States because we deprioritize male birth control and continue to put it on people with uteruses to bear the responsibility and side effects of a lot of highly effective birth control methods. Let's fight for everyone's right to manage their own fertility. And if you really can't wait, then vasectomies are 90 to 95% reversible. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or is something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Hump 2022, Hump My Dirty Little Film Festival is officially on the road. We are hitting up, hitting on five cities this weekend. Hump will be screening in Nashville, Madison, Wisconsin, Vancouver, British Columbia, Long Beach, California, and Palm Springs. And then Hump heads to dozens of other cities over the course of the year. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump is coming to a city near you or grab one of the streaming links. Again, go to humpfilmfest.com right now to find out about all our stops, all the cities we're coming to and on and get your tickets today. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Laura Kipnis on Twitter at Laura Kipnis. That's K-I-P-N-I-S. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. Well, I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. 